Amen. And as we take our seats together, let us open up God's precious Word. We're turning to the New Testament Scriptures, to the Gospel of Luke, and to the chapter 15. Luke's Gospel and the chapter 15. And if you know this portion of Scripture, and I'm sure many are familiar with it, you will know that it is the lost and found section of the Bible. And you would read firstly about the lost sheep, and then about the lost silver, and then about the lost son. And we're moving down the chapter to the 11th verse, and we're going to take up our reading there. Luke chapter 15 and the verse 11. And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found, and they began to be merry. Amen. And we trust that the Lord will add his own blessing to this public reading from his own precious and infallible word. Amen. As we are taking our seats, I want to welcome our brother, the Reverend Paul Hanna, uh, to our meeting tonight. Uh, he's one of our own congregation, 
and I had initially booked him to preach tonight because I was to be away uh, with some presbytery business, but that changed, and then I was able to be here, so I'm looking forward to being able to listen to our brother minister in the gospel this evening. May he know the help of the Lord as he comes now to bring that word in the gospel. Thank you, brother. Thank you very much, Mr. Kenny, for those kind words of welcome, and indeed for the invitation to come along and to take this service this evening. I'm glad someone is glad that I'm here. Our brother mentioned that just now. I mightn't be just so glad to have the pressure of the minister of the congregation uh, right at my right shoulder, but I'll try to put that out of my mind and try to just preach what the Lord has given me, for I believe, this meeting tonight. It's good to be here. Good to see all your faces tonight, and we do pray that the Lord might bless, indeed, and speak to each and every one of us as we turn to his precious word right now, especially for those that are watching along online. We know how these online ministries can be used of God to the salvation of precious, never-dying souls. I want you to turn to that portion again, that portion that our brother read just a little while ago, that portion from Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. Really, I suppose, in many ways, we could say that there are three parables recorded here. Perhaps that might not be 100% true. Maybe this is but one parable in three parts. In fact, look with me at those words in verse 3. And he spake not these parables, but he that is, of course, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he spake this parable in the singular unto them, saying. And then we have the first one, or part one, and then we have, from verse 8, part two, or the second one. But we want to consider especially what we read from verse 11, right down to the end of the chapter, or particularly down to the end of verse 24 this evening. For the few moments that we have, I want us to look at these words together. I want us to think about this theme. And maybe for the sharper ones of those amongst you, you might think, this man has been here before, and he's preached from this portion. He's preached from the prodigal. Well, I can assure you tonight, this is not just a, a mishap or something that I've got confused about, but rather this is a brand new message that has never been preached from this pulpit before. I do believe the Lord has something here, not only for the preacher, but indeed for every one of us and every one of you, if you're watching along online, as we consider these words together. With God's word open before us, let us still our hearts, please. Let us draw near unto the Lord. We can never pray too much. May we ask the author of the book, to draw alongside for this second half of the meeting and speak to your soul the word that's needed tonight. Let us still our hearts, please, in the attitude of prayer. Our Father and our God, we do thank thee that we have the precious, inerrant word of God. We thank thee, Lord, that we have what thou hast intended for us, this pure word, this preserved word, this powerful word. And I pray tonight that thou would be pleased to bless it to our souls, that thou would challenge us, that thou would speak to us, that thou would encourage us, Lord, if that's what's needed. 
I pray, Lord, that the blessed Spirit of God might draw alongside us tonight. Draw alongside the preacher. Stand, Lord, at my right arm. Prompt me what I should say and what I should not say. We pray, Lord, for those in the congregation and those watching along the meeting tonight. Lord, I pray that thou would take away every distraction, every sideward's thought, maybe of things that are in their own right, perhaps good and right and proper. But Lord, I pray that we might be able to focus and hone in upon what thou would have for us in this gathering. Bless us now, speak to us. And Lord, I pray personally that thou would speak through me. For thy glory and thy glory alone we do plead. Amen. You know, whenever we come to these latter chapters, these later chapters in Luke's gospel, it's Luke's gospel that we, at least in the main, intend to keep our comments to tonight. We'll not maybe do that as a rule, but in the main. But it is whenever we come to these later chapters, really, I suppose, we're in chapter 15 tonight, but from chapter 13 and onward, that we are given a glimpse, think of it, folks. We are given a glimpse into the final days in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ while he walked and talked upon earth. In fact, whenever you think about it and how the Gospels are framed for us, Christ's earthly ministry can be divided into three main sections or three main divisions. The first year of his public ministry really is known as his inauguration or the year of his inauguration. The second year of his ministry can be thought of really as the year of his popularity. And you'll discover, you'll find that as you read in the four gospel accounts. But this, we're considering now this, the third, the final year of his earthly ministry. In the main, widely speaking, we'll have to admit that it is largely a year of opposition. This parable, or these parables that we read off here in this portion, they really, to put it into context, to put a time frame on it, occurred right at the very end, the close of that third year. In fact, within the last few months of his public ministry before it, highlighted before it ended it culminated with the greatest work of all and that is of course the cross work of my savior that is of course where my savior through his love for fallen mankind individuals such as you and i allowed those cruel and wicked men to take him and to kneel him to a tree, to hoist him between heaven and earth, where he willingly and in full control would pay the price of my sin in full. And that really is the greatest event that has occurred from the start of time, from the world began, right until this very moment this evening. Do you ever consider the cross? Do you ever consider Calvary? 
In fact, and we've said it already, we're going to try, at least in the main, to keep our comments to Luke's gospel. Luke is one who records through this gospel more. Think of it this way, ladies and gentlemen. More from this intense period in the Savior's ministry, these last few months, more than any of the other gospel writers. In fact, he probably records more detail from that period in the Savior's ministry than all the others, Matthew, Mark, as well as John, all the other gospel writers combined. Now, let's look a little bit about the context, where this lies in these chapters, the context of what we have here and what we've read together this evening. Really, I suppose, when we think of it openly and logically, chapter 14 and 15, it's chapter 15 we're in just now, but those two chapters record for us one continuous narrative. Go back to the start of chapter 14. Look at the very first verse. It's revealed to us there in the heart of that, fourth ver- of that first verse of what day it was. It was the Sabbath day. The Lord Jesus Christ had just gone into the house of one of the chief or one of the top, one of the most senior public, the, the most senior Pharisees to eat bread. And he has been watched. In fact, we'd have to admit as we read down through that portion, the people were watching him like a hawk. Do we read that at the end of that first verse? That they watched him. They were watching his every move. They were listening to every word that came out of his mouth. He really was in the spotlight that day. In fact, in the very first few verses of chapter 15, the chapter that we're reading from, this thought is yet again reinforced to us. Look at verse 1 and 2. Then drew near unto him all. I love to highlight those little words. They're so rich in meaning. It doesn't just say, remember, as the author of the Proverbs tells us, as he writes under inspiration, that every word of God is pure. I believe, and we believe in this church in the verbal and the plenary inspiration of Scripture, that every word of God is pure. Every word of God is inspired and there, therefore, for a reason. It doesn't just say, then drew near unto him, the publicans and sinners. But that little word, all, is inserted there for a reason, to give us the accuracy that they had all the publicans and sinners were there to hear him. But, verse 2 tells us, but there were those who murmured. Remember, this is the year of his opposition. But the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying... Yes, they had their knives out. Yes, they had their negative. Yes, they had the things that they were saying about. What did they say? This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Let me pause there for a moment. They were saying this in the most negative way. They were putting a negative light on this. Let's admit it. This fact, this truth, this truth that they had picked up on. Let me say it today. If you're unsaved in the meeting, if you're a backslider in the meeting, if you're a sinner in the meeting or watching along online, I celebrate this truth. Read it again. What was their murmur? What was their complaint? This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Christ receiveth sinful men. What an encouragement for you and me. Oh, I get it all the time. I would love to have what you have, Mr. Hannah. 
I would love to have the peace and the joy and the contentment that you have. But, and then they'll go on to list their past. But, and then they'll go on to list the sins that they're involved in. But, and then they'll go on to list reasons why Christ would reject them. Look at that verse again. Look at that complaint coming. Listen, from his enemies, this man receiveth sinners. And so he does. Let's move on. We're thinking about the context. We're thinking about the timing. We're thinking about even the place. Let's think about the place this was. We can't be 100% certain where this was. In all likelihood, it would have been in Jerusalem. We're given clues to that. We're given clues in the previous chapter to this narrative. Look at verse thir- chapter 13. Look at what we read there in verse 22 of he, of how he, Christ, went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying, but it doesn't end there. He went through those cities, those villages, but he was heading with his face steadfast towards Jerusalem. It tells us that at the close of chapter 13, verse 22, of how he was teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Now, we can't be certain that that was the place that he stayed. We know he was heading that direction. We can't be sure beyond what Scripture tells us that he remained there because, look at verse 31 of that chapter, chapter 13, he was very strongly advised for his own safety to move on. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out. And depart thence, for Herod will kill thee. This strongly worded warning was given unto him. But regardless of where he was, in these inspired verses of Holy Scripture, we read how the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son and the Son of God, of how he taught the people who literally hanged upon every single word that he spake. Look at verse 25 of chapter 14. And there went great multitudes with him. Do we read that? Even though there were many who opposed him in this, the year of his opposition, even though there were those who were sent out as spies to try and attempt to entrap him in his words, there were those who were with him. And how he turned on that occasion, and he taught them, he spake to them, and he had so much for them by way of words of wisdom. In fact, in chapter 14, the first few verses, verse 4 verses, we read of how he went into the house of the chief Pharisee, how he healed a man that day. At that time, he had an incurable disease, the dropsy. In fact, in these portions of Holy Scripture, we read of how the Lord Jesus Christ ate and socialized with people, no matter what class they were in. He didn't just go for the toffs and those that were fancy and those that had rank in society. The Lord Jesus Christ, very often, what an encouragement this is to you and I. Very often, he actively sought out those who were ostracized in their own communities. You know, one of the tactics of the devil, I believe this, I firmly believe this, is to make you feel alone, isolated, unimportant, that nobody cares. I spoke to a woman last night on that same theme, that very vein of how the Lord Jesus Christ cares when no one else does. With many case and points of that, we'll think of John chapter 4, the woman at the well. We'll think of Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus. Think of Zacchaeus, a hated wee man, a tax collector in a cursed city and how the Lord Jesus Christ went after him. 
Let's look at Luke chapter 15. Let's look at how he, even more individuals drew near to him as he spake, using the means of these parables, or this parable, depending on what way you take it, whether it's one or whether it's three, one and three parts, or three separate individual parables. As our brother called it, named it already, the lost and found chapter. What about you tonight? What about you as an individual, whether you're outside the meeting watching along or whether you're sitting in the pews listening to what's going on? What about you? Does this describe you? Are you at this point in your life still lost? Would you not draw near unto him tonight and answer that invitation that's given? Let's look at this portion. Think of the lost sheep. I don't want to preach on that. That was about the one. Verse 4 to 7. Think of the lost coin. Yes, there were other coins. But the main story, the main thrust, was about the one that was lost. Think here about the prodigal. It was all about the one that was lost from verse 11 and onwards. Let's think about this parable. Because I believe in this parable we have something for each and every one of us. Every one of you. I believe that. No matter what category of sinner we are tonight, every one of us, God's word makes it clear that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What category of sinner are you? Whether you're saved or whether you're lost, there's something here for you. Whether you're backslidden or walking worthy of your calling in Christ Jesus, I believe there's something here for you. Whether you're saved, whether you acknowledge the fact that you're unsaved, or whether perhaps you're relying on a false profession, I believe there's something in this parable for you. We're barely started a new year. We're only in January yet. Is there not something here for you? There's much here in this passage. It's full of truths. It's full of lessons. But the first thing that I want to mention to you this evening is very, very simple. And that's what you'll get from me. It's very, very simple. Because we see it over and over, not only in this passage, we see it every day in our lives. Here we have the lure of sin. I believe in this young man that's highlighted for us here by the Savior, as he taught, we see something that each and every one of us, no matter who we are, we see something that every one of us can identify with. His eyes were wandering off into far off lands. He looked to the other side of the fence and he thought, yes, the grass certainly seems greener over there. I want to have what they have. He was thinking, what if? How can I make this happen? How can I perhaps escape the clutches and the rules and the regulations of home life? And how can I get away with it somewhere else? Oh, yes, there was that lure of sin. In fact, early on in this passage, right at the very start here, we find him making some, really, when you think of it, quite unreasonable, quite cheeky, quite rude demands of his father. And every one of those demands that he made was with a purpose, with a view of getting away from those restrictions, getting away with the bonds and the rules of home life. Look at verse 12 and 13. Look at the way the words are framed in this passage talks about that young man of how the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me 
Those aren't warm, endearing words. Give me this demand that he made of his father. Give me the portion of goods that followeth to me. And then we read in the last little sentence of verse 12 of how he did that very thing. And he divided unto them his living. Full stop, new sentence, straight into the next verse. And not many days after. Well, don't read of a long considered delay. He didn't start to make his plans, I believe, once he had got all those goods that were given unto him. I believe from right early on, even before he opened his mouth to his father, he had been making plans. He knew what he wanted to do. Maybe that describes you, at least in part tonight. Maybe you're making plans, but you don't have the means maybe to put foot to it. Here he was making these plans, and then he had means right away, not many days after, the Spirit of God tells us here. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and actively took his journey into a far-off country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. It seemed that he could hardly wait. Hardly wait till he could escape the clutches of home, home life. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I don't have to tell you this. You know it already. I know from my own experience. I know how sin will grip us and how sin will drag us down. Of how, as one said, sin will always take you further than you wanted to go. Have you discovered that in your own life of late? Of how sin will always cost you more than you're willing to pay. Surely this young man is case an example of that. How sin will always keep you longer than you wanted to stay. In fact, in all three facets of that anonymous quote, we could say this young man was caught out. He found himself in places that he had never planned on. He found himself in the depravity and in the state of life that he never thought possible, perhaps even, in his home. Cost him more. Cost him everything. And it kept him there longer than he had ever intended to stay. Oh, what about the lure of sin in your life? This this young man's case, his example, surely proves that. Whenever we think of the lure of sin... We can think of many examples throughout Scripture, many illustrations throughout the Word of God. In fact, I think one of the last times I was here on the Sabbath evening, we directed your attention to Genesis chapter 3. That passage in itself of the fall of man is case in point for something like that, of how we read there about how man sinned in the Garden of Eden. In that key scripture, we read of how Satan beguiled Eve, of how he drew her, how he tempted her to take of the forbidden fruit. And in doing so, we highlighted this. I remember mentioning that from this very pulpit. Satan used every one of her her senses, five senses, every one of her senses to draw her after what he wanted her to do in her temptation. You know, whenever I look at this passage here in Luke chapter 15, whenever I look at the description given of this young man's activities here, of what he did and of how sin took him further than he had ever wanted to go and cost him more than he ever wanted to pay. Two words spring to mind. In fact, I have it written here with an explanation mark in my margin just beside those verses. And it's simply these words, wasted 
years. Does that describe your life? Does that describe your wilderness years? Maybe you're still there, dear friend. Maybe you're watching this service tonight and you know of a truth that this is something certainly that applies to you. What about you tonight, right now in this meeting? How many years? We're not given a time frame here. We don't know how long this man languished in his sin, languished in his state of depravity, but how many years have you spent in that far-off land? Are you still wallowing in your sin? He literally wallowed in his sin. And the authority of God's word today, right now, I say to you right now, there's no better time than right now to get right with God. The scriptures never speak about coming tomorrow and it being a good thing. About leaving it to next week and it being a, been a positive or a good thing. Next month, next year, leaving it to some other time. That is the sin of procrastination. Rather, the scriptures speak about now. Because now is the only opportunity that you'll have. Would you not come now, dear sinner friend? There's no better time to come right now when you have time, when you have opportunity, when you're stopped in the stillness of this meeting. Do you know you don't even have to wait to the end of the meeting when we're at the door, the Reverend Kenny and I? You don't even have to wait until some Christian friend is a position to answer your questions and sort out your queries. You can cry to the Lord right now in the stillness of this meeting, and he will hear and answer that cry. Would you not do that very thing right now? Yes, sin has its draws. Sin has its lures. But I believe you. Maybe there's somebody in this meeting tonight. I believe you know in your heart of hearts what the right thing is for you to do. What is keeping you back? What is holding you from doing that very thing? You see, I believe. Scripture reveals that the law of God is written on the very heart of man. You and I have a conscience. You know that thing that stings when we know we do something that we know is wrong? What is conscience? It really comes from two words. Con and science. It really means with. Science. The word science means knowledge. God has written that truth, that knowledge in our hearts. And it's with that knowledge, with that conscience, that we know what we're doing is wrong. He knew he was somewhere that he shouldn't have been. He knew he was guilty before God and before his Father. He knew it. And that sin, that lure of sin, that reality of sin brought him to, and this is something that I want you to consider just now, that brought him to a place of loneliness. We'll see it here in these words that are framed for us so lovely here through Christ's giving of this account. Look at the way the words are framed in verse 13 and 14. Doesn't it show, doesn't it jump off the page to us how this man was very, very quickly left in the loneliness of his sin? Look at the very way the words are framed. Let's look at the words. Let's read how not many days after, verse 13, after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there, look at the end of that verse, how it reveals to us of how he wasted his substance with riotous living, and when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of the country. It doesn't tell us how. It doesn't show us here. It doesn't hint to us here that there was a big group of them, a big gang of them who were caught up like this. 
As soon as this man's money ran out, his friends deserted him because they weren't really friends at all. As soon as whatever this man was using to to enjoy, to, to gather up this riotous lifestyle was gone, he was left on his own. In fact, it actually tells us here of how no man, at the very close of verse 16, of how no man gave unto him. He was found to be in that lonely as well as that depraved state. The Bible speaks much of the depravity of sin. We've mentioned just a moment ago about Eve and about Adam falling in the Garden of Eden, failing in their state of probation. Think of how short-lived that pleasure was for them. Think of David's sin, as we read in the middle, in the heart of the Old Testament, how David sinned with Bathsheba, how that was so short-lived, how short-lived that pleasure really was. You know, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, verse 23. Yet we so often consciously trifle with it, even if it's just to dip our toes into it. I came across a quote regarding this. I how true it is. The quote says simply, sin wouldn't be so attractive if the wages were paid immediately. Oh, this man could have said, I made a hearty amen to that. Just think of the depths and the depravity of sin that this man sank into, really, in what looks like such a short, brief period of time. He really was brought to an all-time low. Where are you today? There's nothing as lonely. There's nothing as miserable. There's nothing as poor, uh, when we contemplate it, as the position that this young man found himself in. He really was brought to that all-time low, and it just started off with that idea that he wanted to go to that far-off land. Look at verse 15 and 16, and he went. He got to a stage, he got to a point when he could do nothing but, so what did he do? He went, and he joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him to do something that would have been totally abhorrent. Now, this is abhorrent for us today. But you think about the audience. You think of the context here. This is a Jewish audience. How they would have been totally appalled by what the Savior was saying here. He sent him into his fields to feed swine. That really was the lowest of the low. And he would fain have filled his his belly. What those words mean simply is that his intention was, he, he tried to, he wanted to fill his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. The Bible commentators will tell us this is the pods of the carob tree. Very poor nutritionally. That's what he wanted to eat because there was nothing else. He was starving, you see. He was destitute. He was depraved in the lonely place of sin. You know, you think about this man's position. You think of his state. He really went from the place of privilege. This rich farmer's son. Really went from the place of privilege to the lowest of the low. You know, very often when we think about that, and we thought this morning about how the Lord oftentimes uses the storms of life to bring us to a point where we're stopped dead in our tracks. When we're forced to consider our position. Is that not where we find this young man? Very often that's how the Lord deals with the individual. 
There came a time in his sin and his experience. There came a time in his depravity. And maybe you're reaching, fast reaching this point. Maybe you're here already. There came a time when he was stopped dead in his tracks and given, and this is yours tonight, given an opportunity to examine himself of where he was. In fact, we could go even further than that and say that he was brought to a dead-end corner with no one, nowhere else to go. What about you tonight? Where are you tonight? Are you at your wit's end? Are you not sure whether to turn left or right? Every option looks close to you. Well, that's exactly where this man found himself. Look at the little words there at the start of verse 17. They are so indicative of where he was in his life at that point. Does this not strike a bell with you? Look at verse 17. And when he came to himself, and he started to think. For a long time he hadn't done this, but he started to think logically. How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? Are you there yet? I believe there are times, there are times, the Lord is not the author of sin, but there are times when the Lord allows tragedy, allows sickness, allows distress, as we thought this morning, allows the storm to come in. There are times when those things are allowed to bring men, to bring nations to that point. Our brother did mention that this morning, how families are affected. How nations are affected. What about you tonight? In fact, we find that to be case in point over and over again in that ever-repeating cycle. God's dealings with Israel, we find them in that over, that, that cycle, that cycle of sin, judgment coming back to God. Sin, judgment coming back to God. Sin, judgment coming back to God. Where are you tonight? Are you walking worthy of your calling in Christ? Have you never come to the cross? Are you backslidden? Are you relying on a false profession? I thought about this young man. He was living in a state. He was blessed before. He didn't even realize it fully. But he was lived, living in a blessed state in his father's house. And then he found himself in the depths of the property. Where did he need to go? He needed to go back to where he lost the blessing. What a, play, what a way for us to start 2024 tonight. Do we not need to get back to that place, if I'm addressing backsliders tonight? Back to that place of our first love. Back to that place where the blessings of God thrilled our hearts and thrilled our souls. Do we not need to get back to that place where the blessing was left behind? That's exactly what really, if we boil it down, that's exactly what this young man needed to do. This young man did that. In fact, look at verse 20. I, I love that verse. It sends the shivers up my spine when I read that verse. In fact, I shouldn't admit this, being a hard man and all that, but it can bring a tear to your eye, even mine. Look at the words. He arose. He was at the depths of despair. And finally, at an end to himself, we read of how he arose and came to his father. Full stop, new sentence. But when he was yet a great way off, you see, the father was watching out for him. My point here is the love of the father toward this wayward child. The love that we see in Scripture right throughout it toward the sinner. What about you today? 
When he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. Isn't that a lovely phrase? And he didn't just have compassion and leave it to God. Well, I'll let him come to me. No, he ran and fell on his neck. Now, what sort of a neck was it? He was stinking of swine. He didn't say, oh, I'll tell you what, son, go and get yourself washed and then I'll fall on your neck and kiss you. No, he embraced him the way he was. Does that not the lovely picture of the sinner? Embraced by the father the way he was. What about you tonight? I've talked to so many people and they say, yes, I would love to be saved, but I have to do this, give up this, I have to stop this, I have to end this before I come. Right throughout Scripture, I do not read anything of the sort. In fact, I read the opposite. Come the way you are. This man didn't stop at the, at the wee stream and get himself all cleaned up. He went to his father, and as soon as his father saw him, he ran to him, despite the smell, despite the dirt, despite the filth, despite the fact that he smelled just like the pigs that he had left. I'm quite sure of that. He fell on his neck, and he kissed him. Is there not something here that describes to us something of the love of God? And yet there's so many things, so many excuses, so many reasons that we mount in our own mind why we should not come, why we could not come, why we, should, why we can't come. And yet the Lord says, come unto me. All ye that labor, not those that have cleaned up their acts sufficiently, but all those that labor under heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Would you not come today while you have opportunity? In the stillness of this meeting, would you not come? No matter what reasons he had, oh yes, he worked up all these reasons. In fact, he, I don't have time to go into it. I'd love to take the time to go into it, but he, he rehearsed what he was going to say that day. He, he even maybe practiced it on his way home. In fact, we read of it in the first part of it there of how he, he, had, he went over what he was going to say, the, the things that he was going to put up by way of reason of how he could come. But his father interrupted him. We don't have time to develop that right now, but you can take time to look at that maybe later on of how the father interrupted him halfway through as we pre-prepared speech and he threw all those blessings at him. Kill the fatted cow, bring the best rope, put a ring on his finger, all of those symbolic of God's love toward the sinner, of Christ's imputed righteousness to the sinner. There's so much by way of teaching there even in those items that were to be brought. What about you tonight? I'm quite sure of it. I'm quite sure that this young man never forgot the lessons that he learned in his backslidden days, weeks, months, years. I don't know what it was. I'm sure that to his dying day, he never forgot those lessons that he had learned, those wasted years. And I'm quite sure he never forgot the Father's love toward him. Would you not, I plead with you tonight on the authority of God's word, would you not come? I cannot save you. Mr. Kenny cannot save you. This church cannot save you. But he stands with open arms, willing to receive you to himself. Would you not come? You have a decision to make. Whether you're backslidden, whether you're relying on a false profession, 
whether you've never come to the cross and you openly acknowledge that you have a decision to make right now, would you not come? You have this time and this opportunity. I cannot. You might have another thousand gospel meetings to sit through, or this may be the final one. What if this is your last opportunity? Would you not come? Would you not simply ask the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart and into your life? He stands with willing arms, with open arms, willing to receive you to himself. I just want us to sing two verses of our closing hymn. Time is gone. We'll sing verse 1 and 2 of hymn 269. The first verse speaks of how we've wandered far away from God. Now I'm coming home. Is this the prayer of your life? Is this the prayer that you'll utter tonight? And that second verse ties in so well with what we've read and what we've thought about the prodigal just now. I've wasted many precious years. Now I'm coming home. That verse speaks about repentance and bitter tears. Would you not come tonight? We are your servants for Christ's sake. Mr. Kenny or I can be of any help to any one of you. And I speak of, and for both of us, would gladly take time with you tonight. Would you not come? Two hundred and seven.